Welcome into Winning at Work. If you're looking for what's trending in the $6 trillion food and beverage industry and you want a fun and lighthearted podcast, look no further. The food and beverage executives and totally awesome brands that are featured here take us deep into the world of sustainability and good for you, organic and farm to table, plant-based, ethically sourced, purpose and mission-based products, CBD-infused food and beverage products, how to build a brand, how to scale a brand, fundraising, and more. Welcome to Winning at Work. I'm Tony Moore, expert headhunter, semi-professional podcaster, and I interview the best heads in the business. Want to give these brands a little love? Give them a boost? Well, let's make this a top 10 podcast. Subscribe, give us a rating, follow us on LinkedIn, and leave a comment. You ready to win at work? Let's go. I'm really excited because this is a topic that we've not had before on the program, but there are a lot of family businesses that have been in the food and beverage industry for decades. And I think there's a a feeling that you want to grow, you want to break out of maybe some old traditions, perhaps you need to bring a, a different viewpoint into the organization. Maybe you need to bring in an executive that's come from a large corporation that can kind of help you go through that change management and kind of change the way you approach business and the way you expand from being a very successful re, um, family business into a corporate powerhouse. And today that is exactly the topic we are going to dive into. And I have Craig James. He's the chief executive officer at Berry House Coffee and Tea Company. They're based out of New York. Perfect place. The center of the food world here on the East Coast. I'm really excited to invite in Craig. I'm just going to give you a brief history of his background over 20 years through the um, executive ranks at Exxon Mobil and is now at Berry House and Coffee. He's also uh, part of the Society of Fellows at the Culinary Institute of America. He's also a board member, uh, the Big Apple chapter for the American Culinary Federation. Craig, welcome in today, sir. Tony, it's a great pleasure to meet you. How are you, sir? Oh, it is It is great. Uh, we are... Um, we're very intrigued. I'm very intrigued because when we, you and I kind of talked a little bit offline about this, uh, I thought this topic really resonated with me and I think it's going to resonate with our audience. So I'm really looking forward to kind of hearing, you know, your, your approach, you know, how you can help a, you know, a, a family run business kind of evolve. But before we get into all that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your, um, about your company, your brand, your mission, the things that you guys are, are aiming toward. Yeah, thank you very much, Tony. Appreciate it. So, uh, Berry House Coffee, we are a family business. Uh, first started in 1934 by um, Max Goldstein. Uh, it was then taken over by Herbert Goldstein when he came back from World War II. So, he was actually a forward observer in Patton's Third Army uh, in the European theater. And then, as they grew the business, um, basically moved the business over to his three sons, Barry, Paul, and Ron, who are our owners today. Um, basically we do a lot of private label, um, and branded business. Uh, we've been doing quite a bit of flex packaging in regards to retail bags, fractional packs. We do single serve capsules, both Nespresso and K-Cup compatibles. Um, 
all in all, you know, our f- whole focus is based on quality. And we are USDA organic certified. We're fair trade, uh, quite a bit of a strong relationship with the Fair Trade USA folks, OU kosher, Smithsonian bird friendly. Uh, and then we also meet all the requirements of the BRC food safety standards in place. So, 87 uh, year old coffee company here in the New York City area. Our whole focus is really to inspire a great coffee drinking experience. Um, with the products that we offer, we really want to make sure how we source those coffees and, and how we manage our businesses, both socially and environmentally responsible at all times. Yeah, that is clearly the trend. It's, it should, it's really not a trend. It's not even fair to call it a trend. I mean, it is just a good business practice. And I think, you know, we have discovered that in the coffee industry that there's, you know, a lot of need to kind of drive that value down the, you know, down the chain. What would you say your, you know, your aspirational goal is? What is your almost unattainable goal? Yeah, great question. So for me, it's really how do we elevate the coffee experience? So coffee is a huge industry. It's been around for over 500 years. Um, The U.S., Coffee market is one of the largest in the world and with revenues over about $80 billion. Um, for me personally, I'd, I'd love to elevate the experience. So when I was in the corporate world for 22 years, working through uh, different meetings and PowerPoint presentations, I used coffee more as a functional tool to get by without really realizing what I was putting in my body and, and appreciating the, what I was drinking at that point in time. When I got to Berry House, it really opened up my eyes in regards to how coffee can be an amazing um, experience. So similar to wine, if you think about where the wine industry was about 25 years ago or so, you went into a restaurant and you ordered a red or a white. They brought out a carafe, one carafe of each, and you really didn't have much choice behind it. You look at going into a restaurant now and you think of the experience that you have. An encyclopedia comes out, right? And uh, right. it's here's the grapes from this from this origin. Here's the varietals that are part of it. Here's the taste profiles behind it. Coffee is very similar in aspects to that. How terroir has an impact to the overall tasting profile of that coffee is, is significant. A lot of the agricultural sides of coffee and wine are very, very similar up until the processing aspects. Um, and from that point forward, though, that's where you can really start to get into some different nuances in regards to the varietals and how terroir impacts the overall flavor. So for me, it's how do, you sh- how do we, as Berry House Coffee, share that passion, that experience to elevate coffee within not only the coffee industry and, and cafes and those, but also food service and hospitality. I mean, how many times have I gone out and had an unbelievable meal where the chef or the, uh, the waitstaff came out and explained every single dish to you, what the farmers did to make the vegetables special, what the chef did in order to cook it to make it special. Usually when it gets to coffee, it's just a cup placed in front of you with no explanation. So how do we, how do we change that so it becomes part of the overall experience and continues the theater of what you get in, in a, uh, a nice fine dining restaurant? Yeah, there is definitely a premiumization going across all categories and, you know, coffee is going through that transition as well. So that's, you know, I think you're in the right space, you know, definitely to make those, make those strides. Well, I'm kind of curious. So you're coming out of, of Exxon. So obviously you weren't hired for your um, food and beverage (laughs) background. Correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously your uh, your corporate expertise, right, is is what this family run business 
is wanting to evolve. So uh, kind of walk us through kind of at, at just a high level here. What are some of the steps? What are the four or five steps that really a company has to go through to evolve into more of a corporate entity, corporate powerhouse? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, there's five key themes, I would say, in restructuring a family business for, for what worked with us at Berry House. One is kind of overhauling the, the company culture itself and how do you energize the employees in order to want to participate actively in the journey that the company has undertaken. And the second one is really, you know, how do we transition ourselves? We are very much a, a white label or a private label company in the past, heavy focus on, on everyone else's brand. How do we transition that to start to tell the story of our family and the legacy of our company in order to drive our own brand and drive value into the organization? Um, the third is the power of, of leadership development. You know, how do you educate not just your senior level management team, but also your mid-level managers? They are the future of the company. Any company's mid-level managers are the ones who are going to take them there, take them to achieve the goal and the vision of the company itself. Um, and then also the board itself. You know, in a, coming into a family business, most boards, you know, it's, it's the owner and the family members, right? And, uh, and so have they ever truly had an, an education or, or experience in, in running a company from the 30,000-foot level versus on the, on the ground, turning the wrenches on the machines and making sure that coffee comes out? The, uh, the fourth one, I'd say, is really a focus on structure and process. And, you know, I, I give that back to my uh, ExxonMobil days where we were very structure focused, uh, heavy into processes. The size of our organi organization around the world dictated our approach to, to business that way. But it's also a balance point. You have to be careful. Not You know, I couldn't bring an ExxonMobil type structure into Berry House. Otherwise, I'd squash it in the first week. And then the fifth part which I think is really one of the most key aspects to it is, is understanding um, your leadership style. And for me, being a sage leader is, was really the approach that worked best with a family business. Well, I'm kind of interested in kind of diving in and getting a, you know, an overview of, of each of these. So let's start with uh, your first point, remaking the company's culture and kind of activating the employee, engaging that employee to come along with that journey. So the first part, our first steps that I took coming into the company in day one, everybody was kind of shocked, wanted to know if the owners that sold the company, you know, who was this guy that was coming in that that replaced the, the fourth generation. Um, and so it, it was quite a shock at first for folks. to, And so a lot of direct communication, um, really starting to open up to employees. Transparency is key. Um, the other and kind of the most important piece, because we are manufacturing, and again, kind of a, a nod back to my upbringing in the ExxonMobil culture, is a focus on safety. So we wanted to make sure we took care of our employees. We wanted to make sure our employees went home every single day the same way they came to us in the morning. You know, all, all their fingers, all their toes, no, no uh, issues. Exactly. Whatsoever. I mean, it is manufacturing, right? It's I mean, you've got to be mindful. Absolutely. And so, you know, day one, I started to put in place a, a quite a big focus on safety. There was no safety protocols uh, around here. So tag out lockouts, we put that in place in the equipment, um, made sure that everybody had safety vests anytime they went into the warehouse, blue lights on the forklifts, just kind of the, the standards to bring and elevate the organization to the right safety protocols that should be in place. What that did with the employees is they saw that we're, we want to take care of them. 
you know, that we care and we want them to be safe when they're when they're coming to work at work and when they go home. And so by taking care of the employees and starting to instill that mindset of we take care of you, we want you to take care of each other. The natural progression of that is the employees start to take care of the company itself. And so you, you start to get this, this solid buy-in that, that we're on a journey together versus management coming in and dictating this is the way that things are going to be. Yeah, I mean, you instantly came in and made an investment in them. I think the first thing that happens when new leadership comes in, the first thing naturally as a human, you just think, am I going to be replaced? You know, And for you to turn around and do the opposite – it must have really kind of set the tone from the very beginning that they are the important aspect of the company. And I know you're going to get into that probably in the sage leadership because that's what a, a servant leader does. He serves, uh, he or she serves the organization. Well, I'm, I'm imagining trying to almost start a brand that that sounds like a pretty heavy lift, right? I mean, private label, you know, you have your business relationships and you just continue to provide great quality coffee to, to your partner company. But how do you go through that transition of, okay, now we're going to tell our story? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting journey because when you really boil it down, you almost feel like we're an 87-year-old startup. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we've got an expertise in regards to quality coffee. That's the one thing that the family really focused on is making sure that every cup, every sip that the consumer has is a, is a great coffee experience. And they're focused on quality. We only buy first harvest coffees or current harvest. Um, we don't buy anything that's a year or two old. Um, it's really focused on the freshness. Uh, we use nitrogen in regards to nitrogen blankets on all of our packaging so that we can get all the oxygen or as much oxygen as we can out of the out of the pack itself, which gives us a much longer shelf life and, and freshness to the coffee. So heavy focus on, on the quality, which is what we were really good at. But then how do you tell that story? You know, how do you, how do you suddenly shift gears and, and talk about the legacy of the family and what we're all about and what's important to, to Berry House to make it or to get it to a point of where consumers want to take interest into it. And so first we just started taking a look at, you know, what were the key drivers behind the organization that stood out? We did some research, market research studies in order to identify, you know, what are the demographics we really want to look, look toward? Because not everybody, there's a lot of players in coffee, and uh, not everybody's going to want your, your product. There's a lot of niche coffee companies out there. There's a lot of large corporate coffee companies out there. Um, Folgers is still the number one coffee brand within the industry. Uh, you know, and I, it, it really is. And, and I remember Folgers? growing Folgers. <laughs> so, okay. That's yeah. a little, that's, that's a little <laughs> shocking. I mean, that's, I'm sorry, but that sounds like, you know, something my mom might drink or, right? you know, chock full of nuts or something, you know? So if you think of the, the sophistication of, of coffee and the coffee consumer, You've got a very uh, sophisticated kind of younger generation that's focused on, I want to understand what I'm putting in my body, where the coffee comes from, what social programs are associated with it so I feel good when I purchase that coffee. And then I also want to understand the taste profile behind it because they can sense the and taste the different nuances to coffee. A lot of the, a lot of the um, more experienced coffee drinkers have come up in that Folgers, Maxwell House, um, kind of pre-Starbucks time frame, and it's just what they've always known. Their, their parents drank 
drink those types of coffees. Um, and it was it's just the gateway that, coffee. <laughs> right. And so, you know, it, it's how do people look at it? Some are looking at it from the emotional connection to taste and experience, and others are looking at it as a vehicle. I wake up, I pour my folders, and I get on with my day. And, and neither one is wrong, right? And, and that's the beauty of, the, of this type of market, such a fragmented market. You get so many different types of consumers out there. But that's where we see an opportunity of where we can educate and really focus in on those that want to have that great coffee experience and really want to understand coffee. Like I said, wine was very similar before. You know, there was red and white and everybody just had red or white. And now, you know, you have folks who still want that red or white, but you also have folks who really want to understand what side of the valley it comes from, how it's grown and, and how it's sourced and all of those aspects. So, so I'm just I'm just curious. So, what demographic did you guys land on that you wanted to educate? Yeah. So the the demographic, and it's about 17 percent of the overall market. Um, it's the age group between about 24 and 38. Um, they're the that's the age group that really is focused on you know the social aspects of coffee, the sustainability aspects of coffee, the taste of coffee itself. They're the ones who are going to go out and, and buy these all these little small batch, single origin, tiny little plot type farms in order to educate their own palates and to kind of have an exciting experience behind it. Almost like craft brewing, if you think of, of, yeah. of the beer market, right? You have folks that are really into the craft side of it. And then you have folks that, hey, I'm happy with my Bud or Bud Light, right? Bud I, Bud is, that is, just to me is like, I'm going to put ketchup on a steak. I, I just can't, I don't get that, but yeah, exactly. But that, okay. To your point, to your point. And, and so you think they're going to also probably pay perhaps a premium because you're talking about a premium experience. So, yeah, I think when you, when you really focusing on the quality that goes into it, you're not going to get it at commercial value, right? It, you, if you have programs that are socially focused, if you have programs that are sustainability and, and really giving back to the farmers themselves so that you can continue that growth cycle and sustainability of the overall industry, that does come at a price. I mean, you can't have an expectation that that just comes free. Otherwise, all the commercial folks would have gotten into it many, many years ago. Right. That's a good point. Um, I'm really curious, though, about your next point. Uh, yeah. I think you mentioned uh, leadership and development. That's kind of near and dear to my heart. That's really kind of the essence of the podcast that we're on that we're both participating in right now. So um, tell me more about how I mean that I guess that it got, I guess it makes sense. But if, if I was thinking, you know, like, what are the top five steps to, you know, evolve a family business into a corporate powerhouse, maybe that wouldn't have jumped it to, to mind. But that's that's top of the list for you. Yeah. You know, I was very fortunate in Exxon Mobil. They ran me through all their leadership programs and, um, you know, invested quite a bit of money in me to, to make me a solid leader in their organization. What I realized when I stepped out and started working for a business where now I have responsibility for the marketing side, the sales side, the operational side, um, full aspects of the overall business, identifying where your where your next leadership comes from and how that leadership ha- will evolve is one of the most critical pieces. Because regardless of the size of organization, whether you're a huge corporation like ExxonMobil or you're a small business, you know, medium-sized roaster like Berry House, a single person can't do the entire, can't run the entire organization or, or, or manage the entire process, right? So what we needed to do, and we were a very flat organization from day one. And so um, when I came in, I, I developed a leadership team. So your traditional, you know, one for each each department or function, um, 
and we brought brought ourselves together. And, and just because we now called ourselves a team doesn't mean that, you know, we we could really evolve into leading the company as we knew. Everybody knew their task and, and association to that task, but how do we really jellify as a leadership team to come together and lead the organization? So first step was put together the leadership team. And then I, I got a leadership coach, first time CEO. So I, I got a leadership coach for myself and I got a leadership coach, same person for the leadership team to help us develop to become that, that strong team together. Everybody came from- there's, a, there's another investment. That's your second investment. Yep. You invested. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So and not only at the senior leadership team level, but then we realized we needed to have a mid-level management too. All the, diff- the different departments, all the different employees, our production cells, we needed to create a hierarchy within the organization of leads, supervisors, managers in order to properly run the organization. A lot of it is establishing a platform for us to grow the company on for the future. So my goal coming in was we we're going to double the size of the business. Under a flat hierarchy there's no, or a flat organization, there's no way you can do that. The best way to do that is to give enable the employees, the leadership within the organization for them to follow the same vision that I've set in order to take the company forward. And so that's really where we put a lot of the time and effort. We got the leadership coach as well for the mid-level managers, and, and we're working on developing them. And then also establishing a board, you know, proper governance at that, at that high level, 30,000 feet, to really oversee the organization. Um, three family members, but I, I quickly added two additional uh, non-family members to the board, one with financial experience um, who joined us from Arizona and another um, person from the marketing side of it who joins us here from New York City. Oh, that's clever. And I, it seems like uh, your fourth idea, you know, focusing on structure and process, it feels like it kind of goes hand in hand with the leadership development because you're developing leaders and those leaders are operating within structure and process. So in some ways I see them kind of correlated. They, they do. I guess the, where it extends out is really more on the process side of it and, and standardization. So running a large organization where you have automated lines with robotics on the end, um, you know, it, it's good to have processes in place. What is the startup process? And, and documentation behind that education and training to each employee so that they know their role. We have to be able to give the tools and training to the employees so that they can be successful in the role they have. To just take someone and, and plop them in and say, okay, this is what you're doing now, you know, it's, it's a recipe for disaster or it puts them on such a learning curve that it's almost insurmountable for them. That's the biggest problem. I, it's the learning curve. Anytime someone's hiring, I know everyone listening to this has gone through this problem is how do you ramp someone up that learning curve as quick as possible so they can start contributing and adding to the value and that's obviously what you recognize if you're trying to double the size of the company, uh, whether that be revenue and or through people, that's a huge ask for everybody to ramp people up. If you don't have that structure in place, you don't have the process, uh, it's, it's just a burden. It, it really is. And, and that's where, you know, clear communications, transparency on what we're doing and why we're doing it. Clarity of role is important. You know, everybody needs to have a role and responsibility. And as I, as I tell the entire organization, even the board members, everybody plays a role in this organization to drive it forward. So no one, no one sits back. No one's, you know, just kind of riding it out. Everybody has a role in order for us to meet our vision. 
to be that world-class company, to elevate the coffee experience to our customers. Yeah. Well, I mean, just talking to you, it's clear that you've got a vision and that's very important for a leader, but what do you, what do you mean by sage leadership? I'm, is, is that some unique uh, system or something that, that you picked up? So uh, sage leadership has been, been around for a long time, hundreds of years, actually. Um, even the U.S. military uses it. The Marine Corps is, are, are big on sage leadership, actually. Sage leadership is, is really a focus on, on empathy uh, and understanding of your employees, what they're going through within the, the job itself, clarity of, of uh, providing clarity of purpose uh, and showing that vision basically taking the vision that we've created for the company and ensuring that the employees can see it as well. But I mean, for me, Sage Leadership, how I, how I activate that on a daily basis is I walk around the, the plant constantly. I'm always, I know every single employee by name. I know a lot of their family members. I'm always checking in with them, seeing how folks are doing, you know, particularly through the pandemic. Um, the last 19 months, 20 months have, have been extremely difficult for any organization um, manufacturing you know how do you how do you do a manufacturing uh, organization when when there's a uh, airborne um, you know illness going around? So extremely important taking care of the employees, understanding what they're going through, having an ear and listening to them, not just being there, but actually listening to to work together in order to come up with solutions and, and moving forward from there. So um, listening is probably one of the, one of the other big aspects of, of sage leadership as well of, you know, just being present, being in the moment, taking time to, to hear and value the employees that are around you and part of your organization. Yeah. I had someone on recently and we, we talked about the importance of just letting that employee be heard. Yeah. You know, let them completely voice an opinion all the way through that really helps kind of get that that buy-in to get them to kind of move along with you. Cause you're asking them to do some, some big things, some big changes. Right. Yeah. And I think you hit it right on the head there, Tony. It's, you know, it's really that engagement with the employees so that they have voice. You can send out employee surveys as are, are all well and good, but you know, is that truly an emotional connection to your employee? And I'd say no. So what I've been doing and, and we kicked it off well before the pandemic is I would bring five, six, employees from different functions together and I'd have lunch with them and just hit me with any question you have, you know, I'm, we're, let's talk. And I would share with them our vision, what we're doing. They would ask questions about how we're making out in the marketplace. And we had to put a hold on that for the first year of the pandemic um, for obvious reasons of social distancing and everything else. But this past year we put it back in place and it's really been, you know, I, I, enjoy it because it allows me to hear what's on their mind and what can we do in order to, as an organization, in order to, you know, make their life a little bit easier each and every day too. We're all in this together. And, and the way I look at it, Tony, is we all want the same thing. We need to put a shelter over our heads. We want to put food on our plates and we want a little extra money to go and have some fun with. And sure. so if Especially we're all there in New York city, my gosh, there's so much to do up there. <laughs> there really is. Yes. An unlimited number of things to do. Well, as we as we wrap up today, I, I'm curious. What would you say your uh, your superpower is? What is it that you that really enables you to be successful? 
Yeah, you know, I think for me, it's um, it's kind of really the the connection to the employees and and what I would call servant leadership as well. I always view my role as what what are your barriers that I have the power to take away? You know, if you have obstacles that keep you from doing the best that you can each and every day, then what can I do to knock those barriers out of your way so that you can continue to take that step forward? And so, you know, the connection with the employees, being able to walk around and talk to them at any given point in time. And, you know, it's it's fulfilling for me, you know, coming from a large corporation where, you know, how do you know 80,000 people's (laughs) names? Right. To an organization where we have 80 people and and how do you know, I do know everyone's name and I do. I, I got that personal commitment to them. When we went into the pandemic, first and foremost, our goal was to keep everyone employed and keep them safe. And and we didn't have a single layoff or a single furlough throughout this entire event. It's been challenging, extremely challenging, but that's that's what's important for us. We're a family business. I don't want to lose sight. Even though I come from a corporate world, I don't want to lose sight on the family values that we have. Well, that's great. And I think we could probably have another session on servant leadership because there's so much to unpack there. But you know, for those of you who are listening and you've, uh, like for me, like I had not heard the phrase before the terms, uh, sage leadership, but I'm, I'm very familiar with servant leadership. I've gone through that course and, uh, we practice it, you know, quite a bit. I live it. Um, it's, it's a great way to be. Um, well, Craig, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you, you coming out and kind of teaching us, you know, the, kind of just frankly, very practically speaking, you know, how to help um, a small business evolve and kind of take on more of that corporate infrastructure and kind of process so you can grow and scale. I mean, I think that's really probably a more apt title is, is really how do you help a, uh, a family business, you know, be, you know, organized so they can scale and kind of move out of those, um, it's what seemed to be at the time, you know, practical ways to operate, but now you're, you're adding in the wisdom of a, you know, a fortune 50. Right. Right. I mean, it, you know, like I said, I had a, a tremendous training ground at ExxonMobil and being able to bring that here. The thing that I really appreciate the mo- most is I have a degree from the Culinary Institute of America where I first got my start. I have that degree plus all the degrees that I achieved while I was at ExxonMobil to bring everything together into this business. That's what I really like the most. And, um, you know, we had a saying in at the CIA, in order to be prepared for service, you had to make sure you had your mise en place in place. So mise en place is all your chopped onions and your chopped garlic and everything you need before you go into service so that when you're under the gun, all you need is right there. You just you just continue to, to make amazing dishes. So, and the way I've always equated that in my life is I, you've got to have mise en place. You have to be prepared whether you step into a kitchen or you step into a boardroom. Preparation is key, and so that's the uh, that's the one key to success. I think that's helped me is all the preparation I've gained at ExxonMobil, plus the the self training and, and the leadership training I've received since coming into Berry House here. So. My one wisdom or nugget is, you know, always be open to learning and, and make sure you're prepared before you walk into any situation. Great advice, Craig, and great way to finish up this episode today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Tony.